Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, Christmas time. You go to the beginning of the Gospels because we're talking about Jesus' birth. Today in John 1, we're going to be looking at one of the weirder sort of beginnings to a gospel. I don't know if you've read much of the New Testament, but as you begin the New Testament, these four books of the gospels, as we call them, are four sort of stories of Jesus' life. And the first three start in a much more sort of understandable way for us who are used to reading biographies that start in whatever year this person was born. And then they just sort of go from there. Well, John 1 goes a different way. Uh, And we're going to kind of explore how because, again, in Christmas, maybe you don't feel this way, but as I get older, it feels like it's coming faster and faster. When I was a kid, that used to be a saying. Somebody's taking a long time getting ready. You say, it's slower than Christmas because Christmas takes forever. You want Christmas so badly and it never gets here. And yet, as I get older, and especially now when you're trying to buy gifts for people and you got to do it early because of supply chain problems, yada, yada, it seems like Christmas comes faster and faster. And if that's the case, you start thinking, okay, well, what did I say last year when it was Christmas time? Am I going to say that same thing again? Everybody's just going to kind of roll their eyes because they just heard this exact same thing. Christmas was only one year ago. And yet, I defend again and again the concept that at Hope Church, we're going to continue to repeat what's important. And I think a way to think about it is not that you're hearing the same commercial over and over again. If you're like us, you're in like streaming service world. And in streaming service world, they have no problem with showing you the exact same commercial Time after time after time. And if it's one of those like dancey, catchy commercials, you're kind of okay with it. And then you get really sick of it. And then it kind of comes back around and you're into it again because it's just over and over and over again. Well, at Hope Church, we're going to say the important things. We're going to say the gospel message and we're going to say it over and over again. And that can sound boring. That can sound like maybe you could check this off and not have to come back. But maybe a better way to think of it is what I think Scripture presents as the reason for the repetition. When I look at my family, I have three little girls. How many times do I need to tell them in the course of their life that I love them? Probably a lot. That's going to be a contested truth. They become teenagers, and all of a sudden, they're pretty sure I don't. They're pretty sure the world is out to get them, and they got to go make their own way when they're 13. No, no, no. I, I love you. And I got to say it again and again. I got to say it with my actions and I got to say it with my words. There are important truths that are contested. So we need to hear them again and again. Another way to think of it maybe is how many kisses do I need from my wife? M- more than one. Lots. I, I want lots and lots. Why? Because it's good. Because I enjoy it. Hearing about the gospel, hearing about what God's done for you, his love of you. It's a contested truth. You need to hear it over and over again, but it's also lovely. It's also pleasure. It's also uh, heaven. So as we read John 1 today, I want you to just sort of open yourself up to hearing the same message Again, hearing the gospel message, but the gospel message of Jesus' birth again. I think God in his wisdom has given the church the tradition of two appointments a year that never change. 
And that is Christmas, where we remember Christ's coming, and Easter, where we remember Christ's resurrection. And today, hopefully, we'll underline why some of this is so incredibly important. So let's read together in John chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a copy, I hope you have turned or tapped there by now. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation on your way out. But John 1 begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that beginning sentence can seem confusing, but it also makes um, very, very bold, big proclamations with an economy, with a, with a brevity that's it's hard to match. It's, it's almost breathtaking. It's, it can be difficult to read just because there's so much truth coming at you so quickly. But it's important to see, and this is the first kind of point when we think about Jesus coming to be with us, when you think about the incarnation, which is the message of Christmas, the first kind of thought here is that Jesus is actually God. It does, and it's using this word, word, and it's talking about the logos, and I, I get tripped up every time I come to John because I try to do too much, so today we're just going to kind of focus in. That word, word, has a lot to it. Please go read more about it, but just see Jesus there, okay? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. I don't know what you know about Christianity. We're one of those Christian groups that believe in what's called the Trinity, do you know why? Because we believe the Bible. There are sentences like this in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're a different group, and they've translated the Bible wrong. I'd love to say different. Wrong, especially on this verse. They believe that Jesus was a God or, or a plurality of gods. Well, no. I don't know a ton about Greek. I had to study it for a couple of years in seminary. But the guys who spend their whole life on it can be really, really clear about what the text says. And the text says that the word was with God. The word was God. It is saying that Jesus is God. And again, to take a moment to understand what we're saying here, we are saying God, God. Yahweh, God. Take a moment to, to just sort of ponder this. Everything that you've seen about God, if you just start in Genesis 1-1, and you know, again, if you're new to Christianity and you're just kind of exploring it and you're like, I'm just going to read the Bible and you open up to page one, you got this. Good luck. But if that doesn't work out, don't get discouraged. A lot of other people have kind of washed up on those same rocks, okay? Maybe it's better to start in John or start in Matthew, but if you start at the beginning and you make it through Genesis, which is long, but it's like a lot of stories, then you get to Exodus, also long, but at least the first half. A lot of stories. Maybe you got to Exodus. And it starts to tell this story about this God in big ways. Explosive ways. What I want to do for just a moment is what the New Testament does, which is to say, when we're talking about Jesus as God, we're talking about God, God. Big God. Yahweh God. Self-existent God? 
fearsome God? This is what it says in Hebrews 12. You haven't come to what may be touched. In the Old Testament, the holy was something that was deadly. You haven't come to what may be touched. A blazing fire, a darkness and a gloom and a tempest. That's the word for like a storm. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, again, if you're just picking your way through the New Testament, some of this stuff is going to get tricky if you skipped the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, you have the story of the people of Israel standing before God and before God's sort of representation of himself on Mount Sinai. And Moses, the leader, the guy who's most holy kind of of the people of Israel, is the one who's saying himself, I tremble with fear. It's referencing, and in, in, in Deuteronomy, so the first five books of the, New, or the, of the Old Testament, there's a little bit of repetition. In Deuteronomy, he's going back and he's telling again the story of the people of Israel. And it says in Deuteronomy 5, as Moses is remembering and communicating again what happened, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then he reminds them what happened when the people of Israel stood before God in Mount Sinai. What Hebrews is referencing is this, this story, which is also told in Deuteronomy 5, where it says, And you said, the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man is still alive. Now, therefore, why should we die? Moses came down the mountain. They're freaking out that he didn't die. And now they're saying to Moses, why should we die? Why should this great fire consume us? If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. Here's the picture. Imagine this. Your family is part of a group of people, and you've been slaves forever. As long as most people can think. Now, you've got a good storytelling tradition in your family, so you got this, but you guys have been slaves for 430 years. That's America plus 200 years. And from that slavery, miraculously, with wild, gigantic, crazy, fearsome displays of power, the God of your fathers takes you into the desert through a massive uh, water parting and then water coming back together and destroying Pharaoh, the guy who was pretty much God for 400 years over your people. Now that you're out in the desert, you stand before the presence of this one and it's just you and him. We sing that song. In this moment... He doesn't come like a winter storm, quiet, soft, and slow. Imagine Mount Olympus bursting into flames with darkness all around it, with rumblings and flashings of thunder. And it's not the wild fear that you would feel about a wild fire. 
a mindless sort of destructive force that could just take out your home or everybody you know. It's a fire with eyes. It's not mindless. It's a person. A person who sees you. And in the absoluteness of his holiness, a person who might have to destroy you. Now, this is not supposed to be fire and brimstone. I, you got to make the point of who God is before you can get the extremity of what the incarnation means. Does that sentence make sense? It had bigger words in it, but most of you went to college. It, you have to get the extremity of who God is, the wildness of his holiness, before you can understand the magnitude of the incarnation of Jesus being God and becoming man. He's really God. He's God, God. And this is what we see with Jesus as he's a, a man among people. He's the one who speaks to the storm and the storm ceases. In Mark chapter 4, and it's told other places, but in Mark chapter 4, they're in this boat and the storm's going nuts. And all these disciples who are fishermen or people who are on this lake all the time are pretty sure we're done. This one's way worse than other storms. We're, we're, we're goners. They wake Jesus up. Woo who's asleep, which is crazy again, but he was actually believing that God would take care of them. They wake Jesus up. He wakes up. Stop it. He just speaks to the storm and the wind. We're done here. And it stops. And then he turns around to the disciples and says, you have little faith. And I don't know if he goes back to sleep, but it would be funny if he did. Then the disciples, instead of being thankful that the storm is done, and that they live another day, their fear goes up, not down. Why? That's what it says. Mark 4, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In that moment, they realized that something greater than the storm was asleep on the cushion next to them. They realize that very God of very God is in the boat. That fire on Sinai is in the boat. The boat lands. They get out. There's this guy with all these demons freaking out and scaring everybody. And Jesus stops that. Stops it in a wild way. All these demons go into the pigs and the pigs run off into the water. Wow. Okay. Just what it says. And all the people come out and they see the demoniac and he's sitting and he's in his right mind having breakfast with Jesus and the boys. And the people beg him to leave because something greater than the demoniac is in their presence. Do you understand what we're saying? What the Bible is saying? That he is God? That God has become a man, that God, his presence is among us. Go to Isaiah 6 later today and see what it's like to stand before God's presence. And yet, that God is truly man. You can't get past that either in John 1. It says in verse 14 of John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying... That God has come to dwell among us in the flesh. 
to dwell among us was something that took place in the Old Testament. That fire on Mount Sinai was, was represented by these, these Ten Commandments that are put in the Ark of the Covenant, that are put in the Holy of Holies, that are kind of brought together in this, this tent. And the word that they used to describe this tent was tabernacle. Tabernacle is a noun, as, as a place, a, a tent, where God's presence dwelt in the midst of the camp of the people of Israel. Well, now, come to the New Testament, and here it's saying that Jesus is tabernacling among us. He's dwelling among us, but the word for dwell there is the Greek version of that word tabernacle, that he is coming. Presence of God made, not safe, made approachable, made in the flesh, that he is actually made a man. Said beautifully by this um, New Testament scholar, he's a big wig Bible translator guy named Will uh, W. Hall Harris III. <laughs> yeah, that's how you know he's a good Bible translator. W. Hall Harris III, who says uh, that God becoming man, he didn't create this sort of demigod. So you go to the, the, the sort of the Greek, um, you know, stories, the Greek mythology that they had. There's all of these half gods all the time, but they're like Hercules. Do you know the story of Hercules? His dad's Zeus, mom's a lady, so he looks like a dude, but he's not. Sort of like Samson or whatever. Like he could just pick up the house. He could, he could do anything. He's got this superhuman strength. And he walks around as the greatest hero of Greece. No. We're not talking about demigod. We're talking about God, but we're also talking about God made man. He's not a demigod, but a human being who lived in weakness and vulnerability, experiencing fatigue, rejection, and hatred, disbelief, abandonment, rejection by family, repeated accusations of being demon-possessed, accusation of blasphemy, betrayal, physical abuse, flogging, mockery, crucifixion, and physical death. He didn't walk around as God declaring that everybody fall on their knees before him. That's what they needed to do. That would have been appropriate. From John 1, we read the whole rest of the gospel knowing that that's who he is and that's what they should do. And yet, through all the gospel of John, nobody does that. And yet, Jesus, instead of insisting on it, instead of bashing them on the head and screaming at him because he's God and they need to fall on their feet before him, he just continues to share the love of God, the truth of, to be the Word made flesh. Harris continues, Jesus chose to lead his followers in his weakness and vulnerability, identifying with them fully. And this is the pattern for subsequent leaders in the church to follow. <laughs> Listen, I don't know all of the failings of Hope Church, but I know this one. <laughs> Pride. Look at our master. Our, our king has given up time and again all of who he is in order to, to take on himself weakness in order to bring about our life, in order to identify with us. Really incredible story. I mean, you hear times where people will give up organs for loved ones. And how crazy that because of bloodlines and stuff, like it's possible that your family members will be the candidates to give you a kidney if you need one. Well, there's one story from a, a close friend of, of myself and David. 
more David than me maybe, but it was a guy whose wife was going through this awful, awful disease, needed a new kidney. And he's her husband, not her like brother, but just what are the odds? I mean, it was Kentucky, so maybe the odds weren't that crazy. <laughs> I hope he never sees this. That would be really rude. I apologize. But just low-hanging fruit. Um, what are the odds? As her husband, he actually was a genetic match. So he, and he's like this peak physical health kind of a guy, gives one of his organs away. He accepts weakness for love. You expect Jesus to be anything other than humble. You expect him to be God and just insist on it and insist on everybody fall before him. This is another joke. Forgive me for jokes. Do you know how you can tell somebody at a party has a Tesla? They'll tell you. Now, that's, a, that's an easy joke. You can put whoever you want in there. Anybody who's proud of themselves, like vegans or Navy SEALs or Texans or whoever, you just put them in that joke and it works. Tesla is just what I use because I'm jealous of Tesla owners. But you would expect Jesus to be the kind of guy who is God. And how do you know he's God? Because he won't shut up about it. He says it every two seconds. And yet, when we as Christians are trying to prove Christ is God from the New Testament, we're often trying to like help people see it. Because he's always calling himself the son of man. He's coming in a humble way. And to be clear, he calls himself I am several times throughout the Gospel of John. He's clear about who he is, but he's clear in a humble way, wherein he identifies with us. Magnitude of God as God (laughs) has become truly man. This is the humility that we're called on to exemplify, to, to, to mirror in the same way that God has done for us. And he's done it that we might be born to God. So the middle sort of part of that John passage that I sort of skipped over, it says in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. He's talked about the word. He's now describing Christ as the light. Jesus, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's saying that we, because of what Christ has done, can be with him, can be in him. He's this light that can't be put out. And we, if we we believe, if we become united to him, become sons of that same light. We become adopted into that same identity. That's what it says in Philippians. We've been doing Philippians over and over and over again. Philippians 2, it says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's that same idea. 
that through the gospel, this light that can't be put out, this light to the world, the light of the world, then becomes reflected through these tiny little versions, these, these things that are so fallen and so far from him, and yet, because of what Christ has done, get adopted into that family and become increasingly versions of. Mirrors that. Reflect that light of the world to the world. You think about pregnancy. And as Hope Church, this is a good analogy because everybody's pregnant. Pregnancy. In pregnancy, you give of yourself. Now, again, I'm just an observer. I've never been pregnant. But you watch as somebody fully commits to the life of another. They give their comfort. They give their sleep. They give their health. So that this totally passive other can have life. I was uh, walking through Target yesterday with Rachel. It was really funny because we were, you know, Target on a Saturday, you kind of got to be careful. Lots of carts, lots of people. And there was a point where we're kind of coming around a corner and she like stops the cart that I was pushing, like stops me and lets this lady come through. And the lady with her cart had like a, a toddler in the little, you know, bin or whatever. And then also had a baby in a car seat. And she's pushing the cart. And the reason Rachel got us out of the way wasn't like right of way. The reason she got us out of the way was she saw the look on this lady. It was just that look of like pain and terror of being a mother of young children in Target. And Rachel was like, we got to get out of her way. I've seen that look. <laughs> I've had that look. She knows what it is. If you're a parent, not everybody is, but if you're a parent, you've experienced that. If you're somebody who's cared for somebody in the refugee community, you've experienced that. If you're somebody who's cared for people in the foster care community, you've experienced that. What it is to give of yourself totally. Every time we do it, it's a reflection of the love that comes from the Father. Because that's what he did for us. You put all this together and you see that he is so good. The God who would do this. This is what we're telling you about him. We're telling you about his holiness, but we're also telling you about his love. That high and lifted up, he would become lowly. He would humble himself. Philippians 2. He would humble himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's so good. He's so loving that he fixed the problem. Do you know why they couldn't approach the mountain at Sinai? It's because they had sin. Do you know why you and I can't walk before a holy God? Do you know why it's not going to be enough for you to stand before God and say, hey, you should accept me into heaven because I'm a really good person? No, you're not. You may be good compared to me, big whoop. You are not good compared to what Scripture describes as God's standard of holiness, which is love. Total love of him, total love of your neighbor for all of your life. Is that really what you want to say your life was? Of course not. Again, the only way you can make the argument that you're good is by saying compared to. But A, that's not an objective comparison. You're always going to make yourself look better than you really are. And B, who cares if you're better than people at Hope Church? 
Hey, we're trying to change, but we're people who said that we are so sinful that Christ had to die for us. You're not going to find giant paradigms of, of, of morality at Hope Church. Slowly, over time, yeah, I look at people here, and I'm very impressed and inspired by what they do. But not necessarily Jesus-level character here. Again, comparing yourself to other people doesn't give you a right comparison. Biblically, the comparison is you versus Christ. And that you're going to lose every time. So the only way to stand before a holy God is if somebody stands between you and a holy God. In the Old Testament, it was either the tabernacle curtains or fast forward a little or rewind a little bit further, Moses. But now we have a great high priest, Jesus, who stands before the throne of God, making a way for you and me to know that holy God again. To stand before him and not be undone. Don't you want that? He wants you. There's the fact of Christmas and then there's all these implications. The fact of Christmas has many implications. One of them being that he wants you. He came to find you. There's a book, and it's on limited atonement, so again, you know, get your copy ready, but it's called, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. Picture in the Old Testament we've referenced so many times about Hosea going to find Gomer and redeem her again. He wants you. This Christmas season, stop. Take the time it takes to be amazed that the King of Kings was born. Sing the song. Behold the Son of heaven and earth, the King of Kings is born. Because he's good, because you're not, and because he wants you. Please understand and start to feel that love. Have it warm your heart and change you. Inside out, that's how we do things. That's why that gospel verse religion card is so helpful. We're not outside in. This isn't about behavior modification. It's inside out. It's about having who you are as a person intrinsically changed by the love of God so that a new heart gets put inside you. And the way you do that, again, is not by making yourself some impressive person. It's just by drawing close to him and saying, yes. So what I'd like to do now is just take a moment. If you, do, uh, if you don't mind, just close your eyes and bow your heads. I just ask you to take a moment and think. Many of you are not exploring Christianity. Many of you have explored it. You're in. And for you this morning, have you taken Christmas seriously? Father, I pray for that group of people right now. I pray that you would help us to see a little bit more the magnitude of what you've done, to hear one more time with the emphasis of the cross itself that you love us, that you are better than all the things of this world, that this is a message we want to share with anybody and everybody. 
many of you are people who are, are new to Hope Church. You're certainly exploring what Hope Church thinks, but, but maybe even new to Christianity. And for you this morning, I want to pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, for those that are new to the thoughts of you, will you please overcome our shortcomings as communicators and take the real meat of that message and just implant it in people's hearts. Let them know you in your love and in your holiness so that they understand the need for forgiveness and that they want that source of forgiveness. Lord, we pray these things for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. 